I'm Laura. And I'm Vanessa. And And we're a Tap on the Wrist podcast. Every week, we bring you a new history story with an alcohol twist. The stories you didn't learn from a textbook. In season one, we focused on alcohol-fueled crimes throughout history. And in season two, we told you all the secrets about Al Capone and the Chicago Beer Wars. For season three, we're introducing you to the women that Bill got burned by and ultimately changed the alcohol industry. Make sure you add us on social media at a tap on the wrist. We are so glad you found us. Grab a drink and come along for the ride. Hi, I'm Vanessa. And I'm Laura. And this is a tap on the wrist. Episode 70. 70. 7-0. Season 3, episode 70. We're still doing it. We're still doing it. We're senior citizens. <laughs> it feels like that sometimes. <laughs> oh man, how has your week been going? Um, This week has this been... This week. You know, I'm just... I'm tired. I don't know. This past year... And I don't. I feel like we all probably can relate. It's. I feel so much older. I know. It takes me I so know. much more energy to like get dressed and leave the house and do something. Yeah. Because I've done nothing for a year. I feel like we deserve to not age a year. Like it. This like this year has been such shit. I feel like we should get it back. I'm I supposed know. to be turning 34, but I feel like I should be able to stay 33 for another year. I know. I know. It's just been. I think we're just all tired. We're just tired. But we did get to experience a little normalcy last night. Laura and I went to a bar last night <laughs> called The Shady Lady in Astoria. Um, and we got to have a couple of cocktails. You know, they have a lot of outdoor seating. And it was it was kind of lovely just to be able to sit and have a, a drink that a bartender made for me. Yeah. And it's starting to warm up. And it's nice. And yeah. It's going to be a good summer, and I I just think it's going to take that, like, getting back into the swing of, like, okay, I've got to work, we're podcasting, oh, and I also have a social life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that hasn't been the case for the last year, so just getting back used to that regular routine. I know. Feels hard. It does. It was, when we went last night, I, like, didn't even know, I was like, what do I, what do I wear? What do I... To put on makeup, like I was so, I was so lost. I was like, "How do I do this? What, <laughs> what is having a social life?" But we had some delicious drinks. We did. Um, I actually think we took some pictures, so we can post a couple of pictures of our, of our cocktails, and yeah. uh, let you know what was in them. I know I had a bourbon drink. As did I. Yeah. So that was good. This week we have a really great episode. We recorded it a few weeks ago. It was recorded remotely. Yes. So the audio is not the best quality. Uh, Hopefully there's not too many more episodes where we do have to record remotely because of quarantine or whatever may be happening. Right. Um, We're trying to really make an effort to record in person. Yes. I do also want to point out that the audio quality might be even lower than (laughs) our normal (laughs) recording because... I can't remember if I told the story on the podcast yet, but um, I did, while we were recording a video for Hashtag History, which is another great podcast, who actually was our guest episode last week, uh, I took a shot of whiskey, and I poured too much in the shot, and I choked and spit it onto my laptop. So we had to record using my mom's super old laptop. And, uh, yeah, so the audio quality is probably even worse than normal. But it's still a great episode. It is a really good episode. So just stick it out with us, guys. We're <laughs> we're almost done with quarantine. Yes. Recordings. And then we will be back to 100% in person. Yeah. Where I just, I think the quality of the overall episodes are better. Totally. When we're yeah. together. Yeah. But stay tuned. We're going to tell you two pretty awesome stories this week about uh, 
They're not both about women. Well, they are about women. They're not one, both about <laughs> women. The whole point of our season. <laughs> they are about women, but one is also about a bar that has questionable... Yes. Questionable regulations. Yeah. Historically questionable re- regulations. Yeah. So, we hope you enjoy. Enjoy. One evening in January of 1969... Faith Seidenberg and Karen DeCrow decided they wanted a beer. So they walked into a local bar in New York City's East Village and were greeted with a lot of enthusiasm. Mrs. Seidenberg later described the experience by saying, bells were rung, the clientele of the bar clapped and stamped, and the waiters whooped it up. Definitely Mm. a strange entrance. But yes. Faith and Karen proceeded into the bar, went up, and requested their beer. The effect was electrifying, Faith remembered in a later interview. However, instead of being served, the women were refused service, escorted to the door, where they left voluntarily. And that's kind of what they had expected. <laughs> I'm so confused. <laughs> I um, see, what I didn't mention earlier was that the chanting and the clapping inside was from the all-male clientele. Okay. And the all-male employees. Because Karen and Faith had walked into a bar that had knowingly, for over 100 years been serving beer, and had a zero-women policy. Zero Okay, okay. What year are we in? Doing- <laughs> 1969. Oh. In fact, history shows that the philosophy of the bar was good ale, raw onions, and no ladies. <laughs> raw onions and no ladies. Yeah, I'll get to the raw onions later. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, if I had to make you guess what bar I'm talking about, do you have any idea? Oh, my God. Is it, wait, did you say where it was located? In the East Village? No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What is it? You're is it one I know? It. Yeah, you're going to Oh, God. If you at home listening are yelling at Vanessa right now um, and guessed McSorley's Old Ale House. Oh, shit. You'd be correct. Um, It's most commonly known as McSorley's here in New York. um, And it's actually known for much more, I would say, famous or infamous reasons. But today I'm going to tell you the story of its sexist beginnings. So no as I, I know, as I take you down the 160-year history of this infamous bar, I can't do it without sharing the sexist rules that lived for so long in the history of the bar, and then the woman who eventually took them down. So nowadays in New York City, McSorley's is one of the bars that you might take friends or visitors to if they like beer. Right. It's definitely like Mm -hmm. a history relic and one of those New York City must do's for everyone who moves here or visits here. Um, And most would say what makes it infamous is the fact that the drink menu is so simple. You walk in. If you want a beer, there's two choices, light or dark. And they don't call it beer. I'm going to probably say beer a lot, but it's notoriously referred to as ale. They don't serve beer. They serve ale. But uh, Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, that's it. You walk in, you order light or dark, and within half a minute, you've got your pint on your table. Um, that quote earlier, the onions, they do have a very limited bar menu. Um, and the house, uh, Yeah, the house favorite bar snack, historically and to this day, is a sleeve of I believe it's saltine crackers, sliced cheese, and raw onions. Are you and serious? Then, yes. <laughs> Who the fuck and orders then, that? That's what 
the men drink and eat. Um, and then on <laughs> the tables, on the tables, there is spicy mustard. Um, and that's the snack that goes with your light or dark ale. So, so weird. Yeah. And if you have you been to McSorley's before? Vanessa? I don't I don't think I have. I mean, I wouldn't know why you like you don't like beer and it's yeah. very much like an ale so I'm, thing. I'm trying to think like if I had gone, it probably would have been with you. So if you don't recall me going with you, then probably not. I have not gone with you. I have gone, but I was with other people. Um Okay, so, and so some people think, like, it's the beer selection that makes it so famous. Other people think that the greatness comes from the walls. The, they're lined with aged artwork, celebrity photos, and newspaper articles. Um, other people just like the vibe of it. Like, there's sawdust piles on the floor for if you spill beer, it quickly gets kind of mopped up. Um some love the waiters and bartenders who are mostly Irish. So they give that like atmosphere of like an old New York, you're in a mm-hmm. real Irish pub kind of vibe. Um, so there's a lot going for it. Like Sorley's is definitely like a go-to place. Um, and legend is that no piece of memorabilia has been removed from the walls since the year 1910. Things have been added, but nothing has been removed. Um, And there are many items of historic nature, such as Harry Houdini's handcuffs, which are clipped to the bar rail. Um, There's lots of pictures of famous celebrities and presidents that have had drinks there. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, like so many, too many to name because it's not what the episode is about today but <laughs> it just that's what's there and then one thing I do want to mention because I just loved the history behind this is right above the bar um there is a bunch of wishbones hanging um almost like a chandelier and the story like is that from, they were like from chickens yeah like actual um, bones and okay this yeah yeah actual bones and the story is that they were hung there by soldiers who were going off to World War I. Um, McSorley's had begun a tradition of giving troops heading off like a, a home-cooked meal before they left. Mm-hmm. And um, that was like a, a chicken or turkey dinner and pints of ale. And the wishbones were left as a good luck charm. And those who returned would bring their wishbone back down. So the wishbones that are left are from those that never returned from the war. Oh, that's actually kind of sad. I know. But I love the history behind it. And if you look up pictures of like McSorley's wishbones, you can see them all hanging. But in recent years, they've had to take them and clean them. It was like like the health department was getting ready. Like they've actually in recent years had lots of issues with the health department over all the memorabilia and stuff and making mm. sure it's up to code. Um, so certain things have had to be like dusted and cleaned. Whereas that was not the case until like, until like the last maybe 10, 15 years. So older pictures have like piles of dust and which oh, is yeah, kind I of fascinating. I looked, I just looked one up and I just found one that has, they're like covered in layers yeah. of dust. Yeah, and that, that I, I see one where they're like clean too, but interesting. Okay, we'll post a picture of this for sure. For sure. Um, okay, so McSorley's is the oldest running Irish bar in New York City, and its roots do come straight from Ireland. So I'm gonna go as quick as I can through the history of McSorley's. In 1827, John McSorley is born in County Tyrone, Ireland. Um, And when the potato famine hits Ireland, he leaves his homeland and arrives in New York City on a ship called The Colonist in 1851. Three years later, in 1854, John McSorley opens up an alehouse located at 15 East 7th Street. 
Um, he calls it the old house at home. And to this day, McSorley's is located at 15 East 7th Street. So it mm-hmm. opened in 1854, where it still stands today. Um, it's old AF. It's, yeah. <laughs> so for nearly 50 years, John McSorley runs this bar as a male-only establishment that serves ale. It was no fuss, a hole-in-the-wall, easygoing place. And mm-hmm. I'm not even mad, really, that it was a men's-only bar because that was pretty normal for bars at the time of the 1850s. Um, I actually have an idea for like a future episode this season talking about how women did not drink in public for a very, very long time. Um, and so it it fits in with the history of America. Women would not have been going to bars and pubs. So it's not that he didn't allow them. They just weren't doing it. And so it kind of became like a men's club. Um, and so, That's another story. So in these 50 years, John gets married. He raises his kids. He actually does so well with the bar. He ends up purchasing the whole building, moves his family into the apartments upstairs. And McSorley's is a pretty great bar. Uh, But in 1910, John McSorley dies um, actually in the building upstairs um, in an apartment. And the bar, and he's 83, he lived a long life, you know, Mm -hmm. nothing crazy happened. But his son takes over the running of the bar. So I'm going to fast forward 10 years to the 1920s, which, as we famously know, prohibition happens here in America. Um, McSorley's does not close nor does it become a speakeasy it actually becomes one of those bars that sells near beer um so they create a very low alcohol content beer and that's what Mm -hmm. they sell to their patrons who are very loyal there are some rumors that i found that there was drinking at mcsorley's um Mm. uh like patrons who were Everyday customers could get real beer, but they also they were like, what? Openly, it's just near beer. <laughs> they also openly served near beer um, so that they wouldn't be questioned. And for 11 years of prohibition, McSorley stays alive and well. And so in 1933, when prohibition ends, much in thanks to women, as we've discussed in a previous yeah. episode, um, McSorley's reopens, serving their light and dark ale, but they don't reopen to women. And this is where my blood starts to warm up a little. So I'm like, <laughs> hey, now, yeah. <laughs> um, and so in the 1930s, bars across America don't have men-only policies, right? Women have. Mm shown up in times when they needed women have the right to vote women are working women helped end prohibition so most bars at this time are much more accepting of women patrons not mcsorley's their philosophy still stands good ale raw onions and no ladies you know cheese saltines and raw onions it, it does sound like like a something a men would come up with this is a snack right (laughs) um and so as bill mcsorley gets older uh he decides he wants to sell the bar and he sells it to daniel o'connor who is an avid patron of mcsorley's he's also a new york city policeman so O'Connell retires from the police force and he becomes the first non-McSorley to own McSorley's Ale House. Um, And he doesn't change much to the bar, right? He loves it. It's what he fell in love with. It's why he bought it. So doesn't change the atmosphere, doesn't change the menu, and doesn't change the policy to allow women to come in. Great, great, great. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real cool. So in the year 1938, Bill McSorley dies. And just one year later, Daniel O'Connell dies. So 1939. And unfortunately, Daniel O'Connell did not have time to sell the bar before passing away, which left it to his heir. One Dorothy O'Connell, a woman, because he had no sons. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Now, Dorothy... Not allowed to be served in the own bar she owns. Like. That is. How did she not change the rules? I I don't. Dorothy is a very confusing woman. We're going to get there. Um, So what happened is on his deathbed. Daniel O'Connell makes Dorothy promise she will not change the policy. Um. And she promises her father she will not change the bar. She will not change the policy. And she doesn't. She holds true to that promise. Many of the longtime patrons fear she's going to renovate or innovate. Uh, She does neither. Uh, In fact, she actually hands the managing over to her husband just so she doesn't have to go in to the bar. Yeah. So Ugh. her husband's name is Harry Kerwin and he becomes the manager. Now Dorothy still owns the bar, but she doesn't ever really come in, especially not during business hours. It's rumored she visited on Sundays after the bar was closed. Um, and she was okay with that. Uh, and So at this time, you know, a lot of people have kind of moved on to other bars. McSorley's isn't really the place to be because Mm. men wanted women and women weren't there. So in the 1940s, however, McSorley's happens to get a lot of press. Like there's a, a journalist that goes in and he just loves the history and he writes an article about it that gets published. Mm -hmm. And then in 1943, Life Magazine goes in and they do a photographic article, again, because of the the walls and the history and the memorabilia. And it's those two articles that kind of breathe some new life into McSorley's and get people coming back around. Um, And so by 1954, McSorley's is celebrating its 100th anniversary. Still. Men only still no, at this point. Still no women. Okay. Um, it's actually noted that Dorothy, to celebrate the 100th anniversary, the owner of the bar drank her beer outside because she would not drink it inside. I don't understand. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. So McSorley's would continue. I mean, at, at this point, I guess... If you were that kind of guy and you wanted a bar that women weren't in, McSorley's was the place for you. I mean, it's very much from everything I've read in this time period. It was like kind of definitely not the touristy kind of place it is now. It was very much Mm -hmm. a local dive bar, men's club you know, smoking their cigars, listening to their music, drinking their light and dark ale, eating their saltine crackers, <laughs> like <And> raw onions. <laughs> that was, that was the gig. Yeah. Um, and so it stays that way for another 15 years. So now we're at 1969, that night that Faith and Karen walk into McSorley's. Um, and Faith Seidenberg is at the time a very accomplished attorney and she knew exactly what her and Karen were doing. So the cheering and the clapping at the beginning was like, these men were like, what do these women think they're doing when they walked in? And they walked in confidently, right? Mm -hmm. They wanted a beer and they knew they weren't going to be served and they just wanted to see what would happen. So when they left the bar that night. Um, 
Faith drew up the paperwork and sued McSorley's um, for uh, discrimination uh, on the 14th Amendment, under the 14th Amendment, discrimination on the basis of sex. Um, So Faith at this time was not, um, like she, this is what she fought for was for civil rights. And she was actually only one of two females who had graduated from her law class at Syracuse. So she like had a whole history of being like the only female in the room and kind of dealing and fighting against this. So she Mm -hmm. sues McSorley's under the 14th amendment. And the manager at this time is now Dorothy's son. Cause you know, we've moved on to the next generation. And yeah. so his name is Daniel and Daniel during all of the hearings for this case is quoted as saying, women are more interested in the right to come in than actually being customers of the place. So he truly believed like women just wanted to come to his bar because they couldn't, not that they wanted to possibly drink in his bar. Um, uh, hey. <laughs> he, he briefly thought about making McSorley's a private club to kind of circumnavigate the laws. Um, and so that it wasn't discrimination. If you are a private club and not a public bar, you can have rules like that. Um, however, in court, what ends up happening is that Judge Walter R. Mansfield of the Federal District Court acknowledges, and this is his quote at the trial, the occasional preference of men for a haven to which they may retreat from the watchful eyes of wives or womanhood in general um, is acknowledged. So he understands men sometimes want to go out to a bar without their women. However, but since McSorley's was a private place rather than a private, was a public place rather than a private club, he rules that the practice of barring women amounted to unconstitutional discrimination. He like kind of understood what McSorley's was trying to do, but also said lawfully they can't fucking do it. So in the year 1970, 115 years after it opened, McSorley's under order of the court relented to the pressure and opened its doors to women who were brave enough to enter. Yes. Yes. And Danny, who is the current manager of the bar at the time, wanted his mother, Dorothy, to be the first woman served. But good old Dorothy refused. No. Citing the promise that she had made to her father on his deathbed. Oh, my God. I know. Like this woman. So Danny still wanted to make it a memorable moment, even if he didn't 100% agree with it, you know. Mm -hmm. So he invited a neighboring female business owner, Barbara Shaw, um, who the family knew because she owned a leather business a few doors down, Mm -hmm. to be the first female patron. Um, And there are so many amazing articles about this woman. She is a legend herself in many different reasons but so what she does is she puts on a giant straw hat Mm -hmm. comes over to McSorley's she like grabs elbows with Danny and he like escorts her into the bar and up to the bar where she orders a beer legally as a woman for the first time in McSorley's history um she is quoted I know later as saying when the bar was closed after hours, her and Dorothy would drink in the bar. There were some female patrons, but never during opening hours. Mm-hmm. It was only when the bar was like, quote unquote, closed. Right. So she said it that was the first time she had ever been served while the bar was open. So Barbara Sean becomes the bar's first female patron. And after she broke this gender barrier, Many male regulars did not agree with this decision. They very begrudgingly accepted women into the bar. And this, of course, at the time is big news. It's everywhere. McSorley is now lets women um, in. And so it brings in lots of new customers. 
And the bar was not very welcoming or accommodating as there were no restrooms for women on the premises. (sighs) Yeah. Um, In fact, there's one infamous story and picture um, that we'll put up on Instagram and I have it saved on my computer, but you can just look her up, Vanessa. Um, In 1970, Lucy. Lucy. Commissar, it's K-O-M-I-S-A-R. She entered the bar and people don't really know how, although someone presumes it was a begrudging male, threw a beer on her. Uh, And so the picture shows her standing Mm -hmm. outside of McSorley's, like drenched in a beer, hands on her hip, and like a group of boys or men behind her kind of laughing at her. Mm-hmm. Um, so she had come to drink an ale, but instead left wearing one. And that was kind of what it was like in the 70s for women at McSorley's. What assholes. Yeah. So in 1974, Dorothy dies. Um, and a few years later, Daniel's kind of over the bar life. Um, and so he actually sells the bar in 1977 to Matthew Maher. Um, who had been the night manager and like uh, an employee for 25 years. Mm-hmm. And he buys it and is now the third owner or the third family to own McSorley's in its history. Um, I want to go back to Faith for just a second because she is really the heroine of this story, fighting mm-hmm. and winning that case. Faith Seidenberg never returned to McSorley's. Uh, for a beer uh, ever really even after winning yes um and she goes on to have a very successful career um when she retired in 2005 after six decades of defending um clients civil rights and civil liberties uh, she had fought for cases such as uh, women's equality in college sports And another famous case was whether a lawyer's skirt that was hemmed five inches above the knee was deemed excessively short, which was a case in which a judge refused to let a female attorney practice in his courtroom because he thought her skirt was too short. And Faith represented the attorney. Um, Faith did pass away in 2015 from Parkinson's, um, but she led a pretty awesome amazing life for women's rights what about uh, lady yeah so her story <laughs> ends there but mcsorley's story does not mm-hmm. uh, matthew Maher, who i said bought the bar from the o'connell's was a father of five girls and he made it pretty important within well I say pretty important it took him like eight years but yeah. <laughs> he did build a women's restroom uh, in McSorley's in part of like an unused kitchen since they're only serving raw onions and crackers. Um, <laughs> so he took part of the unused kitchen and turned it into a women's woman's bathroom in 1986. Oh my now, God. One thing that I have not mentioned, but I'm sure you assumed there were no female employees at McSorley's in all this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, no bartenders, no barmaids, no anything. Um, and it is not until 1994 when Matthew Maher's daughter, Teresa, became the first woman to work behind the bar. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. That is crazy. Um, and so nearly 25 years later, in 20. 20- 21, Teresa is still working behind the bar at McSorley's. Uh, and she was recently interviewed in, in 2020 because of the pandemic. Um, and so I read that article and it was pretty fascinating what she had to say. Um, she did note her father who did make the changes to, and build the bathroom and let her work behind the bar passed away in January of 2020. And so she now I believe she is the current owner. She definitely is the manager um, of it. But when 
the coronavirus pandemic hit, the alehouse shut down during the state mandated, you know, precautions. Mm-hmm. And it is the first time the business has closed its doors for a prolonged period of time. Um, when asked about her father and how he would have dealt with 2020, she said that she is glad he missed the craziness of 2020 and that no matter what the pandemic throws at them, they will stay open because Teresa's father had changed the motto of McSorley's from good ale, wrong, it's no ladies. Thank God. To keep the doors open. And she said that is what they plan to do. So the next time you visit New York and find yourself in the East Village, make sure that you order a beer or an ale, light or dark only, and say a toast for Faith, who passed away at 91 years old. And make sure you pee in that damn bathroom because (laughs) we fought hard for it. Um, It's not a haunted bathroom. (laughs) It's not haunted. Uh, And so that is the story of McSorley's old ale house um i i legitimately had no idea i know it's pretty awesome i mean i like not sort of i sort of wish we did video recordings because my face during a lot of that was like very very (laughs) of how i felt but i had no words at that point yeah (laughs) it's crazy because i mean these are years that i was alive that some of these changes made and yeah so, like, we're talking the last 30 years that this bar has allowed women and has built a women's bathroom. And so, but still, all that said and done, I do think we should go and have a beer for Faith when the pandemic is over. So I have a couple of resources. Um, I have one from Gothamist, which love them, but it was called Remembering How McSorley's Banned Women Until 1970. Um, another article written um, <laughs> called Faith Seidenberg, 91 Dies, Took on McSorley's an All-Male Haven. That was published in 2015, right after she passed away. And then the most recent article, that was a New York Times article and another New York Times article that was just written last year. McSorley's first female bartender keeps its spirit alive. So very, very interesting story to hear and um, important to New York bar history. Yeah. Gertrude seemed to describe it with a little bit more affection Uh, in her autobiography. She said all types of nationalities converged, conversed on the front veranda, waiting for the ringing of the dinner bell. (laughs) Many newspaper reporters and feature writers sat at the sat by the hour at the bar gathering rich material to be woven into fiction, which I feel like again was shade at journalists. I, I just feel like they were not, not fans. Okay. So during her time in the Bahamas, Gertrude gained a couple of nicknames. All right. So I feel like this is maybe the first week where we don't have like a real theme. We just have two random stories. I like I was it. trying to think of one. And I guess it might be like women in a man's world, Ugh, but I hate it. Um, so, <laughs> so in season one, I told the story of one of Prohibition's most famous run- rum runners, Bill McCoy, uh, or the real McCoy, if you recall. I remember. Um, <laughs> so little did I know that when I wrote that story, there was a badass lady named Gertrude Cleo Lithgow, um, whom McCoy himself worked with. Uh, she was a contemporary of his and a fellow rum runner. I feel like I'm going to get tongue twisted on saying rum runner. Um, so I was like super excited to kind of learn her story. And here are a couple of quotes about her made by a reporter named Robert Wiggly. I don't know how that Wiggly name is. Wiggly or Wiggly? Wiggly. <laughs> it's W-I-G-L-E-Y. There's no R, so I think it's Wiggly. Looks so sad. So <laughs> um, okay. 
So she, he said about her that she was a truly, truly a wonderful personality, a woman of cultivated taste who can talk on books and who travels with the best music in her trunks and shows such artistic taste in dress. She has commanded the respect and homage of this motley and dubious throng and is known in the trade as the Queen of the Bahamas. So I, 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 was, in, I was intrigued, to say the least. Um, and so without further ado, here is the story of the Queen of the Bahamas. So Gertrude Lithgow was born in Bowling Green, Ohio in 1888. She was the youngest of 10 children. Oh, um, poor woman. Yeah. And she was sadly sent to live in an orphanage at a young age because her mother died of tuberculosis uh, and her father decided that he was unable to care for all 10 children, which That's, I mean, it's terrible. That's yeah, I mean, a single dad who who's working and yeah, I can see how he couldn't take care of 10 kids. I did how read that they re- choose though. I know. Like, how do you choose which ones to keep? That's so weird. <laughs> I know you the least because you're the youngest. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, man. But, uh, I, I did read somewhere that they, like, met up again later in life, but... Anyway, she Gertrude didn't let this all stop her. She was determined to make a successful life for herself, um, and she continued to excel in school. In 1910, she even put herself through business school, uh, which she paid for by singing and dancing during intermission at silent movies, which seems fun. Um, I didn't know that was a profession. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's no more silent movies, so. <laughs> um. Eventually, she would head to the place that all people who want to make a name for themselves go, New York. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Laura's feeling feeling cray right now. (laughs) Um, So while in New York, she worked as a stenographer um, before eventually making her way to becoming a junior accounts clerk for a British liquor import firm called Hagen McTavish. Um, and one of the sources I read claims that she was the first woman to hold a wholesale liquor license, which is badass if true, but it was the only source that I saw it at. So Gertrude was working at a time that we are very familiar with and we talk about constantly on the podcast, the 1920s, AKA prohibition in America, uh, AKA a dark, dark time <laughs> with no, with no booze. I'm not going to go into what prohibition was because we've said it so many times. I'm sure if you go back and listen to our episodes, you, you'll, you'll figure it out. <laughs> um, but once prohibition kicked in, Gertrude knew exactly what to do. Um, she convinced her employers to begin importing liquor from the Bahamas. Now, if you listened to our episode in season one where I covered Bill McCoy, you'll know the history of rum runners, rum runners and rum row. But really quickly, it was a big way that foreign liquor got into the United States. So the Bahamas were conveniently located between Caribbean or Caribbean, depending on how you want to say it, sugar plantations, tomato, tomato, sugar plantations where rum was produced and the Florida coast and rum row was basically like a row of ships. And what would happen is like smaller ships would come up, drop off the booze, and they would be transported to shore. So with the support of her employers, Gertrude took the lead and uprooted her life. And she moved to Nassau in late 1920. So there she set up a wholesale liquor export business where she initiated sales transactions and oversaw the shipments of liquor. She used her connections in Scotland uh, which were through her employer to import scotch through her bu- for her business. Um, and she set up her business on Market Street. Gertrude herself lived at the Lucerne Hotel. Um, and one of the sources I read, <laughs> I don't know if I found this funny, wrote, the hotel is a haven for shady types. 
criminals, rogues, colorful characters, and journalists. I love journalists and with shady types. That's very 2020 of them. Yeah, yeah. Kind of noted at the beginning of the story. So one was the Queen of the Bahamas, which she earned from her fierce reputation as a formidable figure, a businesswoman, and a rum runner. Um, and the second nickname was Cleo. And Cleo was an ode to her beauty and a comparison to Queen Cleopatra. Um, she was described as having high cheekbones, dark eyes, and a strong jaw, uh, and was often called like exotic looking, um, which I don't love to use, but that's what I saw in several places. Um, and I'm going to call her Cleo for the rest of the story now. That's why I brought it up already, because it's just bigger to say than Gertrude or Lithgow, you know? And we're friends like that. <laughs> right. So, of course, because of her beauty, Cleo had a lot of suitors. However, she, she didn't have time for that nonsense. She didn't need no man. Um, she never married, and she wanted to run her business on her own. She was, once said, I've stood on my own two feet, and I'm ashamed of nothing. I'm my own boss, and I'll never take a husband to boss me. Yes, Queen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> can I can I get that on like a etched on a glass? <laughs> totally. Of course, even though she didn't need a man, it didn't stop men from coming around. Um, and I mentioned at the top of the story, Bill McCoy. Um, and it's not only because I covered him. It was for a reason because Bill McCoy was one of those men who Cleo caught the attention of. She didn't shoo him away like she did to a lot of other men. He actually became somewhat of a mentor to her. And the two do seem to have had like a bit of a romantic relationship, though, like I said, she never married. She wrote of meeting Bill McCoy. Something hit me, hit me hard. I could not analyze just what it was. So she she liked him. McCoy is actually the person who advised Cleo to cut out the middlemen, aka her employers. Um, and start doing some rum running of her own. Um, because obviously selling directly to the distributors herself would mean that she would score all the cash instead of it going to her employer and her just getting a cut of it. Um, and so agreeing to take that risk as a woman during this time, where obviously rum running and bootlegging and all of that was very male dominated, the two decided to kind of work together and they did quite a few smuggling rum trips together. She also then began to do some on her own without McCoy. But here's a description that McCoy gave of Cleo um, to our friend Robert Wigley, <laughs> who seems to have written a lot about Cleo. So he said, quote, she was a tall, slender girl with black hair, a brain as steady as her own dark eyes, and a history that was nobody's business. She came to Nassau as agent for Haig and McTavers Scotch Whiskey, no one knew from where. She made no secret of her background, but she told an entirely different tale to everyone who asked. She was born in California. She was born in India. She was a gypsy. She had been raised in the Middle West. You could take your choice. Nassau was not the best place for best place in those days for attractive, unprotected women. But though she was the former, she certainly was not the latter. Members of the rum mob who drew their own conclusions concerning her and then tried to operate accordingly probably will recall the breathtaking fury she could show. And one or two must remember the pistol jammed into their ribs by way of making things clear. An able, thoroughly competent girl she was she. No twittery Jane at whom one could make passes with impunity. She expected others to mind their own business as she attended to hers. She worked at that overtime, and in its course, she nearly ran me ragged. Wow. So quite a description from McCoy. So like Bill, uh, a.k.a. the real McCoy, because of his pure alcohol, um, Cleo also provided high-quality spirits that were not watered down, which was a common practice back then for rum runners and bootleggers. Um, she was even quoted as saying, Everyone knows that my liquor is the very best. At her peak, it was believed that she was bringing in 50,000 gallons of alcohol a month. 
and making $1.5 million a year. Get it, Cleo. However, unlike Bill, uh, who was not a huge fan of violence, she was not one to be crossed, which makes sense because she was a woman during those times and she had to be tough. She was in a male-dominated industry again. So she was known for carrying a snub-nosed revolver in her waistband. Um, an example that I read was of a time that a fellow rum runner began spreading rumors that Cleo traded in counterfeit booze, uh, and she was fucking pissed. So here's an account, an account of the encounter in her own words. For some reason or other, this man thought he would criticize my liquor to other people, and he also said something unpleasant about me. Well... Found him in a barber shop with his face lathered and just walked right in and told him I wanted to talk to him. I fetched him along to my office and there I just warned him. I told him I'd put a bullet through him as sure as he sat there. He went away mighty quick. Um, and I will note that she had a gun in his face the entire time. Like oh, wow. she, <laughs> she didn't mention she it. Gonna... She had a gun in his face as she was saying, like, I will put a bullet through you if you don't get the fuck out of the Bahamas. And he That's did. Crazy. He, left. he left. She was a tough cookie. I also heard of another instance where she invited a fellow rum runner back to her place for a cocktail. Um, but instead, she laid a pistol out on the table to threaten him. Um, there was another time where a guy tried to make a pass at her and she put a blade to his neck. Like, she was no joke. She was like... She, like, did not fuck around. Yeah, yeah. So, as Cleo's notoriety in the Bahamas grew... So did her fame all over. She was featured in syndicated columns in newspapers and magazines, and her picture was even published in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, and the Los Angeles Times. The attention turned her into, like, a bit of a celebrity. I was say, I don't know that you want that. Yeah. Um, men would even send love letters to editors for Cleo, like, professing that their love for her. But again, she didn't give a shit. <laughs> So things would not always go the right way for Cleo. And in 1924, she would face the law. So while in Nassau, she was arrested and charged with smuggling 1,000 barrels of whiskey and rum into New Orleans, which I'll tell you another version of, this, of the story in a minute. I, I feel like she couldn't have been arrested in Nassau. Right? Like, it, I don't know. I feel like that's I mean, wrong. But that's what I read. Uh, yeah, I don't really know how laws yeah. work. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're not professional lawyers or uh, lawmakers in any way, so please forgive us. For or any have I been arrested recently? <laughs> but she was taken to federal courts in New Orleans to await trial. However, luck was on her side, and it was proven that while yes, she had arranged for the delivery, it was actually a dude that worked for her. Um, and who had tried to stab her in the back, who arranged a shady deal to sell the alcohol for his own gain. And so because he had made this deal and it wasn't actually her deal, and because she wasn't there, it was this guy that was there, she got off. Uh, the guy who tried to screw her over was captured by the U.S. Coast Guard. And like I said, she the charges against her were dropped. But a video I watched also describes an event in 1925, so the year after. And, like, some of it sounded a little similar. So I don't know if it's the same event. And, like, you know, it was just at, told differently in two places or if it's a new event. So she was aboard her flagship Ventura, which was stocked up with lots of rum. And the shit, the shit, <laughs> the ship sadly hit a reef um, and it wrecked off the coast of Bimini. So Cleo survived, but she headed to Miami after losing all of her booze. And it was in Miami that she was arrested. And then she was handed over to the Secret Service. And this is when she like became a state witness and turned on her employees and got off because it was really them that had made this shady deal. So again, because she was testifying against people who made a shady deal, I don't know if that just happened twice right. or if there's just some inaccuracies in the story. So our girl Cleo did return to the Bahamas after this. And however, her run-ins with the law had kind of shook her. Not only had this stuff happened, but also in 1924, 
the U.S. government extended its jurisdiction of the waters around the coastlines from three miles to 12 miles. So rum runners needed to sell liquor further from land and take more risks. So she was like, I don't know how I feel about this anymore. And she was considering leaving the business. She even started to tell people that she had a jinx that was waiting to kill her um, and to destroy her operation. She believed she was going to be murdered. Like she just was getting a little paranoid. But her old pal, Bill McCoy, approached her for another smuggling run. Uh, He promised once they dropped off the booze that they'd just keep on sailing and, you know, get out of there. Live happily ever after. Happily ever after. So here's her description of their exchange aboard his schooner from her memoirs. So she said, believe me, it's a tremendous temptation, but I still have some unfinished business. Tales ends, which must have my attention. It is urgent that I return. There have been so many interruptions as it is. Besides, I hardly think it would be proper for me to stay on aboard with three captains. With that, he jumped up and grabs me in his arms saying, I won't let you go. For once, I did not resist his caresses. If you must go back, promise me that you will get the slate cleared of whatever you have to do as soon as possible. Meanwhile, I will finish the overhauling of the ships here and the one in Virginia. We will meet in Miami, then go on a long cruise to the South Seas and just jog along as we please. I won't let you go until you do promise. It was with reluctance that I compelled myself to wake from those wonderful moments. and. As I said goodbye with his arms around my neck, I kissed him. All right, Bill, I promise. You didn't tell me this was a love story. (laughs) Well, it's not because she broke that (laughs) promise. Um, She straight up ghosted Bill McCoy uh, and retired from the booze business. She told him she was going to go. And then she was like, "Mm, I'm just not going to show up. Um, And sadly, the two never saw each other again. Womp womp. That's sad. Like I said, she retired and she would never go back to the booze business. Cleo went on to live in Parkley House in Miami uh, and later in New York. However, most of her life was spent in Detroit, Michigan, where she lived at Tuller Hotel on Grand Circus Park for 25 years. Um, During these years, she wrote her memoirs and she ran a successful car dealership randomly resting yep and she lived off of her booze money she she left the business like the the booze industry with a ton of money like she knew when to retire she was like i'm getting out of here before either i get killed or i get arrested and my money's taken away from me and she was right. able to live off those things for the rest of her life so gertrude Clea litho died in los angeles on june 24th of 1974 at the age of 86 Uh, That jinx never, yeah, it never came for her. She got to live a long life. At the time of her death, the Wall Street Journal estimated her worth at more than 1 million, but she never like bragged or talked about her wealth like a lot of men did back then, aka Al Capone. But so like, it's, it's not really sure how much money she had. They don't, we don't publicly really know. And also I, I really liked this in honor of their fallen queen, Nassau flew their flags at half mass for days after her death like to honor her which is is really sweet because she was just so famous so my sources were an article called Gertrude Lithgow fascinating women of prohibition by Sally J Ling uh, on her website rum runners on her uh, sorry on her website Um, another article called rum runners Gertrude Cleo Lithgow on the rum nation Um, and I also use a piece on share I think it's Sherilyn Dechter, uh, her website. And she's actually an author who wrote a fiction series called The Rum Runner's Chronicles, which is about a female rum, rum runner. So I like definitely want to look that up. I'm intrigued. Um, and lastly, and most importantly, I watched a video from Queen Pins, which was narrated, narrated by Kiki Palmer. Um, and she was such a good narrator. Like highly recommend watching the video or other Queen Pin videos um because she did such a great job awesome yeah i just love this season that we are meeting all of these like kind of unknown women who like did great things that 
like I don't know when you think about prohibition there it's just such a male yeah dominated part of history but like it really wasn't I know women, women were doing were it too there yeah so I just love that we're sharing all of these tales of like women we haven't heard of or things like that totally and I'll get you a glass etched with that quote I didn't want to, yeah. what was it? I didn't want a husband to, uh, I got to find it. I don't know. It was, yeah, it's something about uh, like, I don't I need sit on my. Yeah, it was I sit on my own two feet and I'm ashamed of nothing. I'm my own boss and I'll never take a husband to boss me. Get I love it. I mean, I look, on a glass. Let's, get it, let's get that on a tote bag. We don't, <laughs> yes. have, a, we don't, we don't have a swag shop, but if we did, that's what we would sell. Merch idea. Yeah. I loved that story. She's so interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, both stories today were, were just, I still think about McSorley's and get angry, but I want to go there. Yeah. I want to go. I don't know what you're going to drink, but let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, they have to have like a cider or something, right? No, it's light or dark. Oh, okay. Still to this day, <laughs> that's all you're getting there. I'm just going to have to force myself to drink a beer. Yeah. Because I have to. I have to. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> you tell me when you want to go. Okay. Um, but if you want to see pictures of either McSorley's or Cleo, or Cleo, you can find us on social media. Yes, we are on Twitter and Instagram, at a tap on the wrist. And you can also email us if you know of any story ideas. I feel like especially outside the U.S., if you know of any, you know, story, like foreign stories that involve women and alcohol, sometimes they don't come up immediately. Right. So please send us your ideas at tap on the wrist podcast at gmail.com. Or sometimes even those like tiny niche, like a bar where you live that yeah. has an a interesting history or an interesting woman who's done something great in the alcohol industry. Um, share your knowledge. We'll do the research. We just sometimes. We just need that, that kickstart. Yeah, that idea. Yeah. But uh, but check it out. We have lots of cool pictures. Yeah. Okay, now is the time where we talk about a woman-owned business in alcohol. You know, we're going to do anything ranging from bars to liqueurs to distilleries. And today we're talking about a women own, woman-owned business called Current Cassis. That's how you say it, right? Yes. We just looked it up and I forgot within one second. (laughs) And it is run by or made by Rachel. I think it's Patak or Patash. I'm sorry if I'm saying your name wrong. Um, But it's in the Hudson Valley and it is made with black currants. Yeah, it's it's like a liqueur that I came across when I was searching like women owned liquor companies mm-hmm. and I found out that it's made right here like an hour and a half from where we are um, and then as I was looking on their website they have such an interesting history so I don't yeah. think I've ever had black currant no I don't think I have either and then I realized that I've never had black currant because for so many years it was outlawed in America and in it, New York. It's like a berry, right? It is like a berry, but I guess based on the, the very brief history I've done it and from what their website says, um, at the beginning of the 20th century, they discovered that the black currant or the cassis was a potential threat to the white pine tree, so it was outlawed. You couldn't plant it, you couldn't harvest it, you couldn't use it. So it kind of, like, fell out of production. Like, you couldn't get it anywhere. Yeah. So that's why I think not a lot of people know about it. Yeah. (laughs) But then in 2003, there is a man, actually, who, um, in New York fought to bring black currants back and then in the past few years this woman Rachel has created this liquor based around the black currant that she actually buys from the same man who got New York to overturn that law so he runs 
like I'm guessing a big black currant farm. Yeah. And that's where she harvests her black currants. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm taking a look at their site just to kind of get a little, you know, info about the taste of it. It says that it's vermouthy, um, and you know that it's good to introduce to classics like the Negroni or Manhattan. Uh, it says it feels at home in a bramble or sour, which I think you just said before we turn this on that you think it would go good in a bramble. Well, I think it would be amazing with some whiskey. Yeah. Like, I want... And I've, I've looked... You can buy it in New York, but it's, like, very small. Mm-hmm. Um, where, like, I almost want to just go and visit. Yeah. And up there and see it. Um, but I definitely... It's on my list to try. It's on my list to support. I love a small company that's women-owned that's making something new and unique I've never heard of. For sure. And it says that it's actually made with black currants, whole grain, cardamom, or cardamom, bay leaf, citrus rind, lemon, verbena, wild honey, and clean distilled spirits. So it's got, like, not just the black currant flavor, but touches of these other flavors like citrus and bay leaf, which is... Very cool. It's also 16% ABV if you're curious. Yeah. They have lots of recipes. Like they they do. Add it to champagne, add it to gin, add it to rum. Like I think it just is a great mixer to have on your bar cart. It looks like it's a really pretty color too. It's like a burgundy almost. Yeah. Anyways, check it out. The company is called Current Cassis. 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 Current Cassis. Sorry. Uh, and it's definitely on my to-buy list. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you for joining us this week. We uh, we hope you could make it through the the audio. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and next time you come to New York, make sure you go to McSorley's, especially if you're a lady, because damn it. Yes. We deserve to sit at that bar. We definitely <laughs> do. All right. Cheers. Cheers.